Hi, everyone, and welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal. This is for Thursday, February 16th, 2023. Hope you're having a great start to your afternoon. Actually, it's not even a start. It's well through the afternoon, maybe start to an evening by now. So I hope you're having a great afternoon and uh, getting your evening off to a nice start, as that's not far away. Looking at some of the headlines before we take a check of the forecast. Lawmakers look at limiting traffic cameras. Police chiefs say cameras have led to fewer fatal crashes. That's a story by Tom Barton of the Journal Des Moines Bureau. That's our headline story for this afternoon. Also, look to the skies around Gavin's Point. It shows a bald eagle roosting in a tree along the Missouri River downstream from Gavin's Point Dam in Yankton, South Dakota. The area downstream of the dam is a popular area to watch bald eagles during the winter because the open water near the dam enables the birds to find fish to eat. The story with us is called Time for an Eagle Eye. Winter is time to see bald eagles at Gavin's Point. That's a story by Nick Hightrek. Another headline news on the front page, Laurel Suspect Bound Over to District Court. Nick Hytrek's story, and then finally, Woodbury County tax levies to drop by 1%. That's a story by Caitlin Yamada. But before we get into all that, let's take a check of the forecast here for Sioux City and the northwest Iowa area. What you can expect for the rest of today, mostly cloudy, windy conditions. We saw snow, a lot of snow in central Iowa. I'm not sure exactly what it's like uh, up where you're at. Winds out of the northwest up to 25 miles per hour. The regional summary, very windy today, mostly cloudy periods of snow during the morning, accumulation lasting up to an inch in western Iowa, cold in south, southeastern South Dakota, mainly clear tonight. But for today, we should have seen a high of 26 degrees if we're not at that point already. It says for tonight, clear, uh, uh, frigid in southeastern South Dakota, but uh, no more snow according to this forecast. Overnight, a low of 10 above with winds from the east and northeast up to 8 miles per hour for the Sioux City and northwest Iowa area. It says plenty of sunshine tomorrow in the regional sun summary, and then sunny on Saturday as well. So looking at a sunny day on Friday, a high of 40 degrees, breezy in the evening. Winds from the south up to 16 miles per hour. It says breezy in the p.m., so I guess that's afternoon as well. It'll be breezy and warm with those winds from the south. Warmer, 40 degrees. That's not too bad for February. Uh, moving on to Friday night, expect a low of 20. Saturday, sunny conditions, a high of 44. Yes, very nice. Winds very mild out of the southeast, up to 8 miles per hour. Saturday night, a low of 28. Sunday, cloudy and breezy in the afternoon, a high of 42. Sunday night into Monday morning, a, high, a low of 20, a low of 20. And then Monday, considerable cloudiness, winds from the south and southeast, up to 12 miles per hour, a high of 42. Looking around the state for today, you can expect in Mason City, we should have seen a high of 23, Dubuque high 28, Des Moines high of 27, lows overnight in Sioux City, uh, 10 above Mason City, 6 above Dubuque, 7 above Davenport, 11, Des Moines just 9 above. If you are headed out of the area today, you can expect in Atlanta, Georgia, if you're headed down that way, high of 72, low of 51 overnight. Austin, Texas, high 57 today. Very nice. Low of 34 overnight. Buffalo, New York, high of 44. Low of 26 degrees overnight. Fargo, North Dakota, high of 11 degrees today. Low of negative 4 overnight. Los Angeles, California, high 66. Low of 44 overnight. 
Very nice indeed. Let's take a look at the uh, full stories now from the front page. Starting off with lawmakers look at limiting traffic cams. Police chiefs say cameras have led to fewer fatal crashes. The story by Tom Barton of the Journal Des Moines Bureau. Iowa lawmakers once again are moving forward with a bill that would restrict the ability of cities like Cedar Rapids to use traffic enforcement cameras along interstates, state highways, and county roadways. A three-member House Public Safety Subcommittee this week advanced legislation, House File 173, that would prohibit municipalities from placing or using automated traffic enforcement systems along state and county roads within the city's boundaries, including state highways and interstates. Placement and use of such devices by cities would be restricted to city streets. However, the bill does not prohibit the Iowa Department of Transportation from placing and using the devices on primary roads or a county from placing and using cameras on secondary roads. The bill also limits the civil penalty for a traffic citation captured by the traffic enforcement cameras. In 2018, the cities of Des Moines, Muscatine, and Cedar Rapids successfully challenged rules established by the Iowa DOT that prohibited cities from placing the systems on highways and interstates. The foundation of the bill is not to eliminate traffic cameras, but just to decide who can place them and where they can place them, said bill sponsor Representative Matthew Rinker, Republican of Burlington. He said the bill still provides cities an opportunity to place traffic cameras on primary roadways through a process that involves the state. The bill revives attempts over the years by Iowa lawmakers to prohibit or regulate use of the devices, which capture video of vehicles speeding or running red lights. Law enforcement then reviews the images captured by a camera vendor, and issue citations to the vehicle's registered owners. Iowa cities, including Cedar Rapids, Des Moines, and Davenport, see the cameras as traffic safety tools that reduce public safety costs, while some lawmakers slam them as cash-generating constitutional violations. At least 10 Iowa cities have automated traffic enforcement systems, according to the Iowa DOT. The city of Cedar Rapids began using automated traffic enforcement in 2010. The city uses the cameras at nine locations along its primary highway system and major thoroughfares for both speed and red light enforcement, including four speed cameras around the S-curve on Interstate 380 near downtown. Speeding citations are issued for vehicles that exceed the posted speed limit by 12 miles per hour or more. Cedar Rapids Police Chief Wayne German spoke at Tuesday's legislative hearing expressing his strong opposition to the bill. German and Des Moines Police Chief Dana, Dana Wingert said use of, the, use of the cameras has resulted in a reduction in traffic crashes, including fatal crashes and those with injuries. Both cities worked with the Iowa DOT to identify and place cameras along stretches of Interstate 235 and I-380 with elevated curves prone to crashes but leave no room for stationing squad cars for traffic enforcement. Anyway, you choose to look at this bill, it's a backdoor ban on the use of ATEs, German told lawmakers. I can unequivocally state 100% that ATEs save lives. Since Cedar Rapids began using the cameras in 2010, German said the city has witnessed only one speed-related fatality collision where cameras are located, which occurred in 2016, during the period where the state made us turn our cameras off. German provided lawmakers with a photo of the crash. A sedan traveling in excess of 100 miles per hour crashed into the back of a Cedar Rapids police sport utility vehicle stopped to investigate a wreck in the southbound lanes of I-380 near the 1st Avenue W exit. Two Cedar Rapids residents in the sedan died at the scene. 
Both officers survived, but one was forced to retire a month shy of his 32nd birthday due to his injuries, German said. I can't emphasize enough that we put cameras where the data and the analysis calls for them, and we have seen driver behavior change, he said. Part of the revenue from the automated traffic enforcement program is used for public safety purposes, including supporting the funding of 33 Cedar Rapids police officer positions and public safety programs. Money also has been used in the past to purchase police and fire equipment and support social justice programs such as the Citizen Review Board and Urban Dreams. Since inception, Cedar Rapids has issued about 675,000 citations and roughly half have paid, German said. During January, Cedar Rapids police officers issued 9,288 citations for speeding and red light violations captured by the traffic cameras. The cameras generated more than $5.3 million in revenue from traffic citations for the fiscal year that ended June 30, 2022. And the city has budgeted for nearly $6 million in revenue generated by the traffic cameras for the current fiscal year. Cedar Rapids partners with vendor Census Gatso USA Inc. to run the program. For red light citations, Census Gatso receives $22, $22 per paid citation, and the city receives $78 per paid citation. For speed violations, the vendor receives $20 per paid citation, and the amount to the city varies depending on the amount of the fine. The bill advanced to the full House Public Safety Committee for consideration on a 2 to nothing or 2 to 0 party line vote includes Representative Aiko Abdul-Samad, Democrat of Des Moines, declined to sign off on the bill. I think that since we as legislators want to help our law enforcement officers provide public safety, that we should support them, Abdul-Samad said. Of course he did. Another front page news here in the Sioux City Journal. Laurel suspect bound over to district court by Nick Heitrich of Harrington, Nebraska. For three years, Carrie Jones, a Nebraska State Patrol investigator, Jean Twyford, had verbally harassed her. He'd drive by her house and shout sexual comments to her and on other occasions said things to her in the post office or at the Dollar General store in Laurel, where they both lived. It, by early August, she'd had enough, telling her husband Jason he needed to do something. Eventually, she said, S.H. Blank, got to stop or I'm going to kill him. State Patrol Sergeant Brad Higgins said at Carrie Jones' preliminary hearing Wednesday in Cedar County Court. Higgins said Carrie Jones told him the couple had argued on August 3rd and she pointed a loaded handgun at her husband, then held a knife to his neck, telling him he needed to stand up for her and get the harassment to stop. Hours later, Twyford, age 86, was dead, found shot to death along with his wife Janet, age 85, and their daughter daughter Dana Twyford, 55, in their burning home at 503 Elm Street. Higgins said Carrie Jones told him in an interview that she didn't tell Jason to kill Twyford, but didn't say she'd do it if he didn't. Carrie Jones, age 43, of Laurel, is charged with first-degree murder, tampering with physical evidence, and being an accessory to a felony for the August 4th death of Twyford. Jason Jones, age 42, is charged with four counts each of first-degree murder, and use of a firearm to commit a felony and two counts of first-degree arson. He's accused of shooting the Twyfords and also Michelle Ebeling, age 53, who lived across the street from Jason and Carrie Jones. Jason Jones is also suspected of setting fire to both homes. Carrie Jones is being charged as aiding and abetting in Gene Twyford's death. Assistant Nebraska Attorney Corey O'Brien 
told Judge Douglas Luby that Jones had the intent to kill Twyford and either encouraged her husband to commit the crime or participated in it herself. She makes it pretty clear she had the intent to kill him and get rid of the problem, O'Brien said. Jones' attorney, Nathan Stratton, said the state had not shown Jones persuaded her husband to kill anyone. Nowhere does she tell him, go kill him, Stratton said. She was upset at her husband. She was venting at him to get a reaction. Luby found probable cause for Carrie Jones to face trial and ordered her bound over to district court. Her arraignment was scheduled for February 27th. Firefighters responded to Eveling's home at 209 Elm Street after a neighbor reported an explosion just after 3 a.m. on August 4th. While authorities were at the Eveling's home, a fire at the Twyford home at 503 Elm Street was reported. Higgins said Jones told investigators she had just gotten home from her truck driving job in Sioux City when she and her neighbors noticed Ebeling's house across the street was on fire. Jones said she saw someone stumbling from the house and went to help him. It was her badly burned husband who she said told her he'd seen the fire and had gone to see if he could help. Carrie Jones said she took Jason Jones inside and he handed her his 44 caliber handgun and told her to put it away. Terry Jones said she peeled his burned clothes from his body and washed him in the bathtub before bandaging him and putting him to bed. He refused to go to the hospital, and Jones told investigators she didn't think she could force someone to seek care if they refused. Carrie Jones said she had put his burned clothing in the bag and tossed it out of the bathroom, then told authorities in following interviews she didn't know what happened to the clothes, which have never been found. Jason Jones was arrested later that day and taken to a Lincoln, Nebraska hospital for treatment of severe burns. He remains in custody at the Nebraska Department of Corrections, Reception, and Treatment Center in Lincoln, where his medical care is continuing. Carrie Jones initially told investigators she knew of no reason why her husband would have committed the crimes because they had no problems with their neighbors. Only during a follow-up interview with Higgins on August 16th did she disclose the alleged harassment by Twyford. She also said Ebeling and her boyfriend often stared at her when she was in her yard and they were weird. Investigators found the empty 44 caliber shell casings near Ebeling's body and a Ruger handgun registered to Jason Jones in the Twyford home. A backpack found inside the Twyford home contained receipts from Jones' credit card for gas cans and gas. Gas cans were found at both homes. A review of surveillance camera footage from a Laurel gas station showed Jason Jones filling up the gas cans, investigators said. Prosecutors have filed notice of intent to seek the death penalty against Jason Jones if he's found guilty of first-degree murder. His attorney has filed a motion to quash portions of Nebraska's death penalty statute, saying they're unconstitutional. At a Monday hearing, a judge ordered both sides to file briefs on the matter before he issues a ruling. Jason Jones has not yet been arraigned. And the photo here shows Carrie Jones Wright listening as her attorney Douglas Stratton speaks during a January 23rd hearing in Cedar County District Court in Hartington, Nebraska. Jones is charged with first-degree murder, tampering with physical evidence, and accessory to a felony in connection with the August 4 quadruple homicide in Laurel, Nebraska. Our final front page, actually, I'm sorry, we've got two more here to go. More front page stories. Um, time for an eagle eye. We'll read that. But first, Woodbury County tax levies to drop by one cent. This is written by Caitlin Yamada of the Sioux City Journal, Dateline Sioux City, Iowa. Tax rates next fiscal year for both urban and rural residents will decrease by one cent. The Woodbury County Board of Supervisors 
say that they were able to close a massive $6.3 million gap and reduce the tax levy. Tax rates for the next fiscal year are currently set at $7.14 for urban and $9.60 for rural per $1,000 of taxable valuation. The board will hold a public hearing on March 7th and the budget will be certified March 28th. The gap to keep the same rate as fiscal year 2023 was the largest in years, almost triple the previous year. Board Chair Matthew Ung said the board started with the largest shortfall in county history. It will be the ninth year in a row that the tax rate has not been increased on countywide residents, and I think that's extraordinary, Ung said previously. While there are still items pending that could change the budget, it would only further de decrease the budget, not increase it, and it would go back into reserves without decreasing tax levies, Budget Director Dennis Butler said. Historically, $2 million has been the gap the supervisors needed to fill to keep the property tax levy the same. Last year, the board sought to close $2.6 a $2.6 million gap. The board has been working at each meeting throughout the month to make small and large cuts from department budgets to bridge the $6.3 million increase. As of February 10th, the board has surplus revenues of $57,703. This current amount includes the full recommendation given by the Compensation Board for elected officials and a temporary placeholder for the deputies' union contract that is still being negotiated. The Compensation Board made a recommendation of a 7% increase for Auditor Pat Gill, Treasurer Tina Bertrand, and County Attorney James Loomis, a 10% increase for the Board of Supervisors, and a 22% increase for Sheriff Chad Sheehan. The board has until the budget is certified to decrease three percentages by the same rate. This year's budgeted gap was closed through a variety of budget cuts, appropriations, and the use of other avenues of funding. One of the largest changes that affected the budget was the use of the $2.5 million of the proceeds from the sale of the county farm. This is the second year the board has made this move. Other large decreases were $670,500 from the district health allocation reduction and instead using American Rescue Plan Act funding, $535,000 reduction for equipment for various departments using gaming funding instead, $411,738 from the correctional facility sheriff's budget, and $225,000 from lowering the secondary roads minimum tax asking. Many of the smaller reductions were due to a 40-hour accrual reduction. The budget cannot increase after Tuesday, but the supervisors can continue to trim the spending plan until the budget is certified in March. The overall tax asking was proposed to increase by roughly $7.8 million with improvement request. Without the improvement request, the tax asking was proposed to increase by $7.3 million. Last year, it was around $6.3 million, Butler said. If nothing was changed, the potential tax rate was $8.07 for the urban and $10.69 for rural per $1,000 of taxable valuation. The fiscal year 2023 budget had tax rates of $7.15 for urban and $9.61 for rural per $1,000 of taxable valuation. This was a two-cent decrease from both, for both from the Fiscal year 2022 budget. Our final front page story is about the Eagles. Time for an Eagle Eye. The story by Nick Heitrick. Winter is the time to see bald eagles at Gavin's Point. The story out of Crofton, Nebraska. 
If Duggan Smith's office window faced north instead of south, he'd probably be much less productive this time of year. When you've got bald eagles soaring, swooping, diving in the air outside, it's hard not to take a break, walk to the observation room on the north side of the Lewis and Clark Visitors Center, and spend a few minutes watching what they're up to. Situated on a bluff above Gavin's Point Dam and the Missouri River, the Visitor Center gives Smith a front-row seat to the dozens of eagles that can be seen some winter days snagging fish from the unfrozen water below the dam or keeping watch from the tall trees lining the river. You feel like you can reach out and touch them when they fly by the Visitor Center, said Smith, a park ranger. It's a pretty sight. There's something about seeing a bald eagle that never gets old, catching a glimpse of that white head gleaming in the sunshine while driving past the tall trees near a river always leads to the temptation to pull the car over and watch. What's the attraction? Maybe because for so long, seeing a bald eagle was a rare sight. After years of hunting, poisoning, and the use of pesticide DDT, our national symbol's population had dropped so low it was placed on the endangered species list. Back when I started birding in the early 70s, it was rare to see one in the winter, said Bill Huser of South Sioux City. I knew people back in the day that had never seen one before. Bald eagles didn't nest around here, Huser said, but now many do, and their large nests can be seen along waterways such as the Big Sioux River north of Sioux City. And Sioux Land has become a popular wintering spot for bald eagles, which will fly from frozen northern areas and congregate anywhere there is open water, providing a steady source of fish and geese for food. It's why Gavin's Point Dam near Yankton, South Dakota, is a prime spot to see eagles. The water just below the dam doesn't freeze over, so it attracts bald eagles just looking for a meal. Smith said some days it's possible to see dozens of eagles in the trees or floating in the updrafts caused by north winds hitting the river bluffs. They're a year-round attraction for birders who can often be found near the dam with cameras and binoculars pointed skyward. Smith understands the attraction. I think it's just they're majestic. I think it's the way they look and what they represent, he said. It's hard to think of a world without such a beautiful creature. Thanks to conservation and recovery efforts, including the government's banning of DDT, we don't have to. Bald eagle populations have rebounded, and they're no longer on the endangered list, though migratory bird and eagle protection legislation still gives them cover. Seeing a bald eagle nowadays is no rare event. You just need to know where to look. Huser said any open water during the winter will attract eagles seeking a, good, uh, seeking a food source. They're common along the Missouri River, and Riverside Park of Sioux City's west side is a great place to see bald eagles in the trees along the Big Sioux River. Numerous eagles can be seen along the Big Sioux as you drive north on Iowa Highway 12 out of Sioux City. The park, the area around Little Sioux Park near Correctionville, Iowa, also is a good site for eagle watching, Huser said, and about 50 were seen a week ago in trees lining the Little Sioux River along Iowa Highway 31 between Anthon and Oto, according to a post on the Les Hills Audubon Society's website. You never know. They go where the food is and where the geese are, Huser said. Once the ice melts, the eagles will spread out. Those who came from the frozen northern waters will return home to nest, and the local nesting pairs will begin focusing on raising the next generation. By the end of March, bald eagles will be a less common sight, though there are several who are year-round residents in this area, a big change from the days when few, if any, called Siouxland home. It's a great thing to see a species that was having trouble and losing population rebound like that, 
Huser said. It's great to see them, period. Even better now that there's more of them around. All right, takes care of everything on the front page here of the Sioux City Journal for the Thursday, February 16th edition. Hope you're having a great afternoon, everyone. Andrew Halp here filling in for this reading of the Sioux City Journal. Moving on now to page A2. In local and nation news, we're going to start off with a brief section. Cherokee, Iowa man claims lottery prize. Dateline, Dateline Storm Lake. A Cherokee, Iowa man's wallet got a whole lot heavier this week. On Tuesday, William Brady claimed a $10,000 Iowa lottery prize at the Storm Lake Regional Office after he won a $100,000 Mega Crossword Scratch game. According to a release from the Iowa Lottery, the $10 game features 38 top prizes of $100,000 as well as 76 prizes of $10,000. Brady brought this winning scratcher from the he bought it from the Casey's at 1200 North 2nd Street in Cherokee, according to the Iowa Lottery. Another brief one man killed in Union County, South Dakota crash, Dateline Beresford, South Dakota. One man was killed and another man was injured in a three-vehicle crash Tuesday afternoon east of Beresford in Union County. According to the South Dakota Highway Patrol, a 2007 Kenworth semi-truck and trailer was traveling east on South Dakota Highway 46. The driver swerved to avoid rear-ending an eastbound pickup truck, which was turning into a private driveway. The semi-truck and trailer crossed into the westbound lane, colliding head-on with a westbound 2012 Kenworth semi-truck and trailer. The 2007 Kenworth driver, 76-year-old, a 76-year-old man, wasn't wearing a seatbelt and was thrown from the truck. He was pronounced dead at the scene. The 2012 Kenworth driver, 38-year-old, a 38-year-old man, was wearing a seatbelt and suffered serious non-life-threatening injuries. He was transported to a Sioux Falls hospital by ambulance. The pickup driver, a 45-year-old man, was wearing a seatbelt and was uninjured. The names of all three people aren't being released pending notification of family members. The 2012 Kenworth was hauling ethanol fuel. Highway 46 west of Beresford was closed to traffic for six hours while a hazardous material team responded at the scene. South Dakota's Highway Patrol said an investigation into the crash is continuing. In other news here on page A2, Sioux City Council votes to add four police officers. A story by Dolly A. Butts. Her last name is spelled B-U-T-Z. Dateline Sioux City, Iowa. The Sioux City Council voted Wednesday in a split decision to add four police officers in the next budget year. During a wrap-up budget session, Mayor Pro Tem Dan Moore made a motion to include the hiring of four additional police officers in the fiscal year 2024 operating budget. Mayor Bob Scott asked to amend Moore's motion to two officers. Scott's amendment was defeated by a vote of one to four. Moore's motion passed four to one with Scott casting the lone no vote. Scott noted that it isn't that he isn't opposed to the additional officers. I'm not going to vote for four officers. I'm not opposed. Scott said before the vote, I can't vote for four when you're asking other departments to do a whole lot less. I understand, but I think you want some sort of progression to show the council's good faith. I think two officers personally does that, he said. The Sioux City Police Department, which has allocated 127 full-time officers, is currently experiencing burnouts and dealing with injuries and retirements at a time when the community is growing, according to Sioux City Police Chief Rex Mueller. We need more manpower so we can redistrict, meaning we can redraw the lines of our community and where officers work, Mueller told the council. District 9, which includes Morningside and Whispering Creek, is increasing the community's footprint, according to Mueller. Right now, since we don't have additional bodies, we're leaving the district lines as is, and we kind of try to fill in the blanks, he said. 
Scott said it takes about six officers to increase a district, not four. Four may allow you to change your district, which would be a huge mistake for one shift, maybe two, but it doesn't allow you to change and add a district. Four officers will not do that, he said. Mueller agreed with Scott that the department would need more officers to do that. He said increasing the number of officers, however, will eventually lead to redistricting and a better distribution of the workload. We're really concentrating on essential services here. We want to make sure that we can still maintain, if we have losses like we've suffered here, those essential services. We don't want to tell you all of a sudden we're not going to respond to that, Miller said. We want to maintain services if we deal in with losses that are expected and unexpected so that we can continue to provide a certain level of service and safety to the community. Council members Julie Schoenher and Alex Waters expressed interest in using a portion of the city's red light and speed camera revenue to cover some of the cost of adding officers in effort to reduce the tax burden on residents. Waters talked about using the city's red flex fund to cover two of the four officers at least this year and tax dollars to pay for the other two. City manager Bob Padmore advised that the additional officer positions not be tied to the red flex fund as the state could move to eliminate speed cameras and red light cameras at any time. He told the council that the city staff will report back on how much speed camera or red light camera revenue is recommended to be used to fund the additional officers compared to taxes dollars. City Finance Director Teresa Fitch previously told the council that four additional police officers would cost homeowners $5.85 per $100,000 of revenue. And on that uh, note, we will tell you that we are just about here at the halfway point of this reading of the Sioux City Journal. This is for Thursday, February 16th. Hope you're having a great afternoon, everyone. This is Andrew Hoppy, reader filling in. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Don't forget that all of our programs are intended for the list of our the the, list, the use of our audience, the listenership of our audience here on IRIS. And if you have any questions about this or any other program, feel free to give us a call at the office at 515-243-6833 or toll-free from anywhere in the state of Iowa, 1-877-404-4747. And now we jump ahead to today's obituaries here in this reading of the Sioux City Journal. Our first is for Sandra Sandy Pearson of Hayde Warden, formerly of Akron, Iowa. Age 75, died Tuesday, February 14th, 2023. Services are February 20th at 11 a.m. at St. John's Lutheran Church in Preston Township in Akron. Burial is following services at St. John's Lutheran Cemetery in Preston Township in Akron. Visitation is February 19th from 2 to 5 p.m. The Rex Winkle Funeral Home of Akron and uh, at, that's uh, and they resume February 20th from 10 a.m. until the time of the service for visitation at the funeral home. Next is for Anthony Joseph Newman of Alton, Iowa. Age 84, died Monday, February 13th, 2023. Services are February 18th at 10.30 a.m. at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Alton. Visitation is February 18th from 9.30 a.m. until the time of service at the church. Arrangements are with the Fish Funeral Home and Monument in Remsen, Iowa. A recording of the service will be available at the Funeral Home's website. From there, we go to Margaret A. Knutson of Mobile, Iowa, age 98, died Tuesday, 
February 14th, 2023. Services will be February 17th at 11 a.m. That's tomorrow at the Holly Springs Bible Fellowship in Hornick, Iowa. Burial is in the Greenwood Cemetery in Pearson, Iowa. Visitation is one hour prior to the service time at the church. Arrangements are with Nicholas D. Jensen Funeral Home of Moville. Next, Thomas C., known as Tom Calvert. Thomas C. Tom Calvert, age 70, of Newcastle, passed away on Monday, February 13, 2023, at a Sioux City Hospital. Services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Friday at the Congregational Church in Newcastle. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. today with a prayer service at 7 p.m. at the Moore Funeral Home in Ponca, Nebraska. Online condolences may be directed to the Meyer Bros Chapels, www.meyerbroschapels.com. Tom was born on January 27, 1953 in Sioux City to Lyle and Charlotte Mahon Calvert. He graduated from Ponca High School in 1971. On December 16, 1977, he married Chris Anderson Chase in Newcastle. After graduation, Tom spent one year in Alaska seeking his fortune. Returning home, he worked as a cement finisher at Foxy Book. Then he became a route driver for Old Home Bread in 1984, where he worked for 37 years until he retired. Following his retirement, he worked part-time at Walmart and Holiday Inn in Vermilion. He helped and assisted leading the church youth group with his wife, Chris, for a few years, coached Little League Baseball and Basketball, and was a proud member of the Eagles in Vermilion and the Teamsters Union. Tom loved playing cards, and if you asked him, he was the expert. Bowling, playing baseball and softball in his younger years, golfing and watching sports. He was an avid Nebraska Cornhuskers fan. Above all, his grandchildren were his world. He could be found cooking them breakfast nearly every Saturday. He is survived by his wife, Chris Calvert, children Kyle Calvert, Michelle McElswain, Scott Chase, married to Lapita, and Shannon McCabe Harding, married to Steve. Fourteen grandchildren, five great-grandchildren, siblings Ruth, Mary, Bob, Maureen, Julie, Jim, Paul, and Pat and their spouses, faithful companion Smokey Joe, and several nieces, nephews, and cousins. He was preceded in death by his parents, stepson Brian Chase, and son-in-law Joe McCabe. Memorials may be directed to the family for future designation. Next we have Helen Strubby. Last name is spelled S-T-R-U-B-B-E, age 93, of Sanborn, Iowa, died Tuesday, February 14, 2023. Services are February 17th at 10.30 a.m. at St. John's Lutheran Church in Sanborn. Burials at the Roseland Cemetery of Sanborn. No formal visitation. Arrangements were with the Sanborn Funeral Home. And finally, Laverne L. Schroeder of McCook Lake, South Dakota, age 82, died February 11, 2023. Services are February 21st at 1 p.m. at Sacred Heart Catholic Church. That's February 21st at 1 o'clock in the afternoon at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Sioux City. Burial is at the Logan Park Cemetery. Visitation will be held February 20th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. In celebrity... Passing news, Raquel Welch dies at age 82. This is a story by Mark Kennedy of the Associated Press, Dateline, New York, New York. Raquel Welch, whose emergence from the sea in the skimpy, fury bikini in the film One Million Years B.C., would propel her to international sex symbol status throughout the 1960s and 70s. She has died. She was age 82. Welch died early Wednesday after a brief illness, according to her agent, Stephen Lamana. 
of the talent agency Innovative Artists. Welch's breakthrough came in 1966, campy prehistoric flick, One Million Years B.C., despite having only three lines. Clad in a brown doe-skin bikini, she successfully evaded pterodactyls, but not the notice of the public. I just thought it was a goofy dinosaur epic we'd been able to sweep under the carpet one day, she said in 1981. Wrong. It turned out to, that I was the Bo Derrick of the season. The lady in the loincloth about whom everyone said, My God, what a bod. And they expected to disappear overnight. She did not. Playing lust for the comedy team of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore in their film Bedazzled in 1967, and playing a secret agent in the sexy spy spoof Fathom that same year. Her curves and beauty captured pop culture attention, with Playboy crowning her the most desired woman of the 1970s, despite never being completely nude in the magazine. In 2013, she graced the number two spot on Men's Health's Hottest Women of All Time list. In the film Shawshank Redemption, a poster of Welch is used to cover an escape tunnel. In addition to acting, Welch was a singer and dancer. She surprised many critics and won positive reviews when she starred in the 1981 musical Woman of the Year on Broadway, replacing a vacationing Lauren Bacall. She returned to the Great White Way in 1997 in Victor Victoria. She knew that some people didn't take her seriously because of her glamorous image. I'm not Penny Marshall or Barbara Streisand, she said in 1993. They'll say, Raquel Welch wants a direct, give me a break. Or Raquel Welch wants to direct, direct, give me a break. Welch was born Joe Raquel Tejeda in Chicago and raised in La Jolla, California. Welch was divor a divorced mother when she met ex-actor turned press agent Patrick Curtis. The irony of it all is that even though people thought of me as a sex symbol, in reality, I was a single mother of two small children, she wrote in her autobiography, Raquel, Beyond the Cleavage. Curtis became her manager and second husband and helped shape her into a glamour girl with hundreds of magazine covers and a string of movies, plus exercise videos and books like the Raquel Welch Total Beauty and Fitness Program. Though she would appear in exploitive films, she also surprised many in the industry with fine performances, including in Richard Lester's The Three Musketeers, which earned her a Golden Globe in opposite James Coco in Wild Party. She was also nominated for a Globe in 1988 for the TV movie Right to Die. Married and divorced four times, she is survived by two children, Damon Welch and Tawny Welch, who also became an actress, including landing a featured role in 1985's Cocoon. That's about Raquel Welch. Another very interesting story here on the bottom of the page. Actually, I'm going to bring you two more here from page A7 before we switch over to the sports section. Charges dropped against reporter arrested at a news conference. It's written by John Sewer of the Associated Press. A cable reporter pushed to the ground and handcuffed while covering a news conference about a train derailment in Ohio will no longer face charges, the state's attorney general said Wednesday. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost dismissed trespassing and resisting arrest charges against News Nation correspondent Evan Lambert, saying he had every right to be at the press conference. Lambert was arrested and then jailed for five hours on February 8th after authorities said he was told to stop his live broadcast and refused their orders to leave the news conference with Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. 
The reporter said in a statement Wednesday he was grateful for those who worked to see that the charges were dismissed, including DeWine. It is by design that reporters aren't meant to become the story. In my case, I truly did not choose this, he said. Body camera footage showed Lambert had a heated confrontation with Major General John Harris Jr., commander of the Ohio National Guard, just before a sheriff's deputy and an East Palestine police officer arrested him. Police said Lambert was talking loudly while on the air from the back of the gym while DeWine was speaking at the same time. Yost, who was asked by the county prosecutor to review the charges, said the local officials appeared to be following the lead of the National Guard. Regardless of the intent, arrest of a, arresting a journalist reporting at a press conference is a serious matter, Yoss said. Ohio protects a free press under its constitution, and state officials should remember to exercise a heightened level of restraint in using arrest powers. DeWine, who is governor, was at a news conference giving an update about the derailment of a train carrying toxic chemicals, said he did not authorize the arrest or see the dis disagreement, adding that reporters have every right to report during the briefings. He called for the charges to be dismissed and said on Tuesday that he talked with Harris. I think the general regrets the whole situation, DeWine said. Body camera footage showed Harris confronted and pointed a finger at Lambert and then briefly pushed the reporter with one hand in the chest. Lambert also was pointing and talking to Harris until a state trooper stepped in between the two and moved away the commander the footage showed. Lambert later pulled away from two officers who then pushed him to the floor and handcuffed him, the video showed. This is what it's like to be a black reporter in 2023, Lambert said while he was being held down, according to the footage. The two officers who handcuffed Lambert are white, as is the Columbiana Sheriff, the Columbiana County Sheriff, who ordered Lambert to leave. Both Lambert and Harris, the National Guard commander who is a member of the governor's cabinet, are black. Lambert said in his statement Wednesday that he will, was still processing what was a traumatic event in the context of a time where we are hyper aware of how frequently some police interactions with people of color can end in much worse circumstances. Interesting stuff there out of that very odd situation in Ohio. In other news here on page A7 out of the CDC, teen girls see spike in behavioral health concerns. It's very interesting here. I think I'll bring this to you. So um, we're going to be reading this. It's by Sandaya Raman. I've not pre-read this article, so we'll just kind of see what uh, what's going on. Teen girls who experience persistent feelings of hopelessness or sadness skyrocketed over the past decade, according to a 10-year survey released by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The CDC reported Monday that almost all indicators of poor mental health and suicidal thoughts increased from 2011 to 2021, with higher rates seen among female and LGBTQ plus students. In 2021, 42% of high school students reported feeling so sad or hopeless regularly for at least a two-week period that they stopped doing their normal daily activities. Students feeling consistently hopeless, reporting seriously considering suicide, making suicide plans, and attempting suicide increased, but the percent of students injured during a suicide attempt did not increase. The results came as public health experts, advocates, officials, and lawmakers issued warnings about the worsening mental health crisis for youth. Advocates called for the administration to declare youth mental health an emergency, and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommended screening children and teens for depression and anxiety. Young people are experiencing a level of distress that calls on us to act with urgency and compassion. CDC Division of Adolescent and School Health Director Kathleen Ethier said, with the right programs and service in place, 
Schools have the unique ability to help our youth flourish. The study released Monday as part of the CDC's Youth Risk Behavior Survey Data Summary and Trends Report showed teen girls experienced worse outcomes compared to boys. In 2021, 57% of teen girls reported feeling persistently sad or hopeless compared to 36% in 2011. For teen boys, 29% reported these feelings in 2021 and 21% in 2011. 30% of female students also reported seriously considering suicide, and 24% made a suicide plan in 2021. Teenage girls also reported higher rates of not going to school because of safety concerns, being electronically bullied, being bullied at school, or being forced to have sex compared to teen boys. Almost 20% of female students reported experiencing sexual violence. High school should not be a time for trailblazing, not trauma. These data show our kids need far more support to cope, hope, and thrive. Deborah Howery, the CDC's Chief Medical Officer and Deputy Director for Program and Science, said in a release, Proven school prevention programs can offer teens a vital lifeline in these growing waves of trauma. The CDC said schools can incorporate evidence-based practices to improve youth mental health, such as having teachers and mentors help students feel connected to their community and by teaching students about their emotions and sexual consent. Congress took some steps to expand mental health programming. The 2022 Gun Safety and Mental Health Law provided $500 million for the school-based mental health services grant program and $240 million to fund mental health awareness and to detect youth mental health issues over four years. It also provided $150 million for implementation of the three-digit 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Joe Biden also called to do more on mental health and especially for our children during a State of the Union address last week. While the report showed increases in the percentage of students who feel persistently sad or hopeless across all racial and ethnic lines, the numbers are especially stark for certain minority groups and LGBTQ students. Hispanic and multiracial students experienced feeling persistently sad or hopeless at higher rates than their Asian, black, and white peers. But black students were more likely to attempt suicide than Asian, Hispanic, and white teenagers. In 2021, almost 70% of LGBTQ plus students said they felt persistently sad or hopeless. A 20% reported, and 20% reported attempting suicide. 52% of LGBTQ plus teens had poor mental health symptoms in the prior 30 days compared to 29% of all teens. Last week, a separate study included in CDC's morbidity and mortality weekly report showed suicide deaths increased in 2021 after a two-year decline. A total of 48,183 individuals died by suicide in 2021 compared to 45,979 in 2020 or at the 2018 peak of 48,344 deaths. All right, time in the reading here of the Sioux City Journal. Time to bring you the uh, sports section. Why don't I read you an opinion first? Because I didn't realize I had opinions in here. We'll just go in order here. I'll read you one opinion. It is, Time is Now to End Daylight Savings Time. That's written by Lincoln Star Journal Editor, Editorial Board. It's the Other Voices section. You could set your watch by it. The legislature is in session, and Senator Tom Brees of Albion is back for the fourth time in four years with a bill to put Nebraska on daylight savings time year-round. 
And for the fourth time in four years, the Journal Star editorial board is with him. Let's put this one to bed. His proposal, uh, Legislative Bill 143, would end springing forward in March and falling back in November if the federal government and at least three neighboring states do the same thing. While the federal government hasn't acted, 19 states have, including Wyoming and Colorado. Brees and others have made their case arguing the economic and productivity benefits of additional daylight for part of the year, as well as public safety, health benefits, and convenience. Sure, lots of smartphones and cars update automatically, but everyone has a microwave or a guest room clock radio that never gets changed. And what parent hasn't felt the pain of trying to put a three-year-old to bed at 8 p.m. on the Sunday night right after the time change? While support isn't unanimous, Brees hasn't had much trouble enlisting other senators. Senator Megan Hunt of Omaha reported during the bill's committee hearing that her office gets more support for this bill than any other that's being discussed. Nationally, polling has shown folks don't want to change their clocks twice a year. The margin narrows a bit when it comes to the question of whether daylight saving or standard time is adopted. The Senate adopted a bill last year, but it stalled in the House. A decision in Nebraska doesn't immediately end standard time. It just aligns us so we're ready to ready if other conditions are met. But it gets something done that plenty of people want, and it frees up lawmakers to deal with even timelier issues. Sure, high noon sounds a lot catchier than high 1 p.m., but outside of that, this is a public policy slam dunk. Let's approve it in the legislature and be ready when the rest of the nation catches up. And it shows two clocks in a photo here by Charles Krupa. Two six-foot-tall clocks built for a Florida hospital are tested prior to the shipment of, at the Electric Time Company in Medfield, Massachusetts on March 10th. It shows those two clocks there, and they're both uh, big analog clocks. It looks like something that would be at a train station. All right, moving on now to the sports section here in the Sioux City Journal. This should finish off our reading for today. SB-Ls, Codinus, and Skoglund move on. Helens, De DeLeon, Venturi also advanced to 2A quarterfinals. Dateline, Des Moines, Iowa. Three Sergeant Bluff Luton wrestlers moved on into the Class 2A quarterfinals of the traditional state tournament after winning opening day matches Wednesday. The Warriors' quarterfinals included Ethan Skoglund and brothers Ty and Bo Kodam, sons of head coach Clint Kodam. Two Bishop Heelan wrestlers, Ethan DeLeon and Nico Venturi, also advanced to the round of eight Thursday. DeLeon, the top seeded at 170, remained undefeated for the season after winning by technical fall over Webster City's Austin Mason Wednesday. A University of Nebraska recruit, DeLeon, now 43-0, will face number seven seed Ben Tangi of NH-TV, wherever that's at, in the quarterfinals. DeLeon's teammate, Venturi, court qualified for the quarterfinals after winning a 5-4 decision over Sergeant Bluff Luton's J.C. Curry. Venturi, the number 8 seed, will face top seed Braden Bonsack of Union, LaPorte City, in the quarterfinals Thursday. Ty Cotum, the number 2 seed at 145 pounds, won by a 9-3 decision over Creston's Chris Aragon in his only match Wednesday after earning the first round bye. In the quarterfinals Thursday, the senior, now 46-5, will face number 7 seed Cale Hansen of Monticello. Ty's younger brother, Bo, won by fall over Oskaloosa's Trey Miller after earning a first-round bye. The sophomore, the number 4 seed at 145 pounds, 
will meet fifth seed Nick Koch of North Fayette Valley in the quarterfinals Thursday. Skoglund, the three-seeded at 120 pounds, won a 3-1 decision over Caden Pritchard of Eagle Grove after earning a first round by Wednesday. In the quarterfinals Thursday, Skoglund will face the number six seed Gavin Jensen of Williamsburg. Six more SBL wrestlers remain in contention for medals at the state tournament, competing in Wrestleback Thursday to also uh, Interstate 35, whatever that, yeah, anyway. Uh, Baker, the number one seed at 145 pounds, won by fall over Connor Cassidy of Martinsdale St. Mary's in the round of 16 Wednesday after earning a first round bye. The senior who improved to 34-2 to in, into on the season will face number nine seed Indy Harbaugh of Lisbon in the quarterfinals Thursday. At 113 pounds, Morrow, the second seed, posted a 15-0 technical fall over Colfax Mingo's Case and Fitch in his only match Wednesday after earning the first round bye. In the quarterfinals Thursday, Morrow, now 36-1, will beat number seven seed Gage Samo of Waco Wayland. Sachow, the eighth seed wrestler at 126 pounds, won by technical fall over West Hancock's Jacob Larson after receiving a first round bye. Sachow, now 28-3, will meet number two seed Colton Munson of Ogden in the quarterfinals Thursday. Sentence, the number nine seed at 132 pounds, won by fall over Jack Brannon of Riverside and Oakland in his opening match Wednesday and came back to beat Riley Parkus of Kemper Catholic 9-7 to reach the quarterfinals. The senior who improved to 48-4 will face top seed Underwood's Gabe Porter 44-1 in the quarterfinals Thursday. At 160 pounds, McGill, the number five seed, won by fall over East Buchanan's Tanner Thurn in the round of 16 after earning a first round bye. McGill, now 33-2, will face number four seed Loudon Husanga of Waco Wayland in the quarterfinals Thursday. Blau, the fifth seed at 195 pounds, won by fall of Lennox Jake Cow in his only match Wednesday after earning a first round bye. The junior who improved to 26-5 will square off with number 13 seed Ben Saxton of Emmitsburg in the quarterfinals Thursday. Saxton upset number 4 seed Kale Zuhl of West Hancock, winning by fall Wednesday. In his only match of the day after earning a first round bye, Scott, the number 4 seed at 182 pounds, won by major decision over Chase Wickwire of Belle Plaine. Scott, who raised his record to 43-1, and will face number five seed Ian Udell of Iowa City Regina in the quarterfinals Thursday. Dehu, the number 10 seed at 220 pounds, won by fall over Al Burnett's Luke Schneider in the first round and then pinned number seven seed Wyatt Hanna of Lake Mills in a mild upset in the round of 16. In the quarterfinals Thursday, Dehu will face number two seed Evan Foreman of Interstate 35. At 285 pounds, McGillian, the number six seed, won his only match of the day over Nottoway Valley's Trenton Warner in a 9-7 decision. After earning a first-round bye, McMillan, who improved 31-3, will beat number three seed Mac Orter of Don Bosco in the quarterfinals Thursday. Lower the results, and we're not going to go through all that because that's a big, long, long list. And uh, so, yes, there we go with some uh, wrestling news there. And uh, that's all the time we have for this episode of the Sioux City Journal. I know we're kind of cutting it short here, but we have to get this thing trimmed and on the air. 
So thank you so much for listening to Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Don't forget you can catch us online at iowaradioreading.org. This has been Andrew Happy Reader saying thank you so much for joining us here for this reading of the Sioux City Journal. Stay warm. Have a great afternoon, everyone. Thanks for listening. Straight ahead.